Holland versus Brackeen and the consolidated cases. Mr. McGill. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. According to the federal government, in 2020, there were over 11,000 Native American children in state foster care. The Indian Child Welfare Act deprives, Native, deprives Indian children of the best interest of the child test. It replaces that test with a hierarchy of placement preferences that puts non-Indian families at the bottom of the list. As this court explained in Hollyfield, this effectuates a federal policy of sending Indian children to the Indian community. The problem is, is that there are fewer than 2,000 Native American foster homes. That means each year, hundreds, if not thousands, of Indian children are placed in non-Indian foster homes. And sometimes there, they bond with those families. Yet when those families try to adopt those children, ICWA rears its head for a second time allowing tribes to play the proverbial ICWA trump card at the 11th hour. This is happening now for a second time to the Brackeens as they try to adopt YRJ, who is now four and a half years old. For a second time, the Brackeens are asked to show good cause to overcome the placement preferences under a new regulatory standard that in the agency's words is narrow, limited, and not a best interests test. Not even YRJ's deep attachment to the Brackeens after being part of their family for four years is sufficient. For both that child and her family, this flouts the promise of equal justice under the law. I welcome the court's questions. Uh, would you spend a minute on uh, what the good cause standard is? Um, uh, I think of course, you understand that there's already a placement, there's already adoption in process, but how does that work? Justice Thomas, the, uh, after the 2016 rule, what the, with, at 25 CFR 23.132, you now, there are now five enumerated ways in which good cause can be shown. The government says that it, that the regulation merely says that it uh, should be one of these five factors. Uh, but you know, a remarkable thing happens when a family court judge in the states picks up a copy of the Code of Federal Regulations. He treats it as binding federal law. And that is how it happens on the ground. It is treated as enumerated things that must be shown. Further, it excludes uh, any consideration of socioeconomic circumstances, of the, uh, of the competing families. And finally, it says uh, that what the regulation describes as ordinary bonding and attachment that arises from a placement that's in violation of ICWA's placement preferences shall not be a, the, a sufficient or sole basis for showing good cause. And of course, the child uh, at, at issue in these proceedings has no stake in whether she or he was placed uh, in supposed violation of ICWA's preferences at the foster care uh, at the foster care process. Counsel, you haven't challenged the regulation. Uh, yes, we have, Your Honor. We have a challenge to the, But not in the cert granted question. Um, Your Honor, we challenged the we raised uh, a challenge in our complaint to the I'm not asking about the complaint. The cert granted question does not include challenges to the regulation. It, it, it challenges the, the statute. 
We challenged the uh, regulation as an unconstitutional, as an implementation Council of Council, answer the question. Is it part of the question presented or not? I believe it is, Your did Honor. Did you seek cert on that question? We did not seek cert on the question of the, whether it is a permissible construction of the statute. We sought cert on whether the statute— So if, it, if you don't seek cert on that, there's nothing on that good cause standard. I don't, I don't think so, Your Honor. Um, Counsel, can I turn to something you said, which was it displaces the best interest of the child standard. In most uh, state custody proceedings, the best interest of the child is uh, what guides those decisions. Yet we have the Hague Convention on the Abduction of Children that basically says to the court, you can't make that determination. You have to send the child back, and it gives a session, section of exceptions, et cetera. Um, and it even says um, standards of proof, et cetera. Why is this case any different than the Hague Convention? Um, for, I think, a couple of reasons, Your Honor. First, uh, the Hague Convention, as I understand it, would send the child back to their place of their habitual residence. But that's not necessarily in the best interest of the child. There's no best interest standard there. But what I was, if I might just uh, finish my thought, Your Honor, um, that is that habitual residence standard is, is essentially duplicated in Section 1911A, which provides for tribes, tribal courts to have exclusive jurisdiction concerning children who are domiciled on uh, on tribal lands. So th I think that 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 parallels the Hague Convention. The other well, how? Meaning these children are in the U.S. They have a relationship with an Indian tribe over which we have recognized for over two centuries Congress has plenary authority. If Congress in one enumerated power can supersede a state standard, why can't it in another? Well, Your Honor— If they can say the best interest of the child shouldn't be the top test or only test— either good cause or something else, as it what does, why is that beyond Congress's power? I'm not aware that uh, an equal protection challenge has ever been presented to the Hague Convention. Uh, if, you, if you're referring— you, you, you think that Congress's foreign affairs powers don't permit it to legislate with respect to the relationships of a foreign country and— its competing custody issues? Your Honor, I think the foreign affairs power is subject to the Fifth Amendment. I think the question of whether citizenship is a, would, be, uh, would rise to the level, a classification based on citizenship would amount to race discrimination, would you know, essentially be the question of whether citizenship is being used as a proxy for race. Counsel, the government to what extent is the best interests of the child or the same considerations that are taken into account uh, uh, under the best interests of the child incorporated in the good cause uh, showing that can be made under ICWA? Um, I would say that they are not, Your Honor. I mean, the, the good cause standard is, is a holistic standard that takes all of the child's circumstances and needs into account. 
what the good cause standard does is sharply limit that under the 2016 rule to enumerated factors. In the 2013, when the adoptive couple case was before this court, the government described the good cause standard as a safety valve. That's footnote two of its brief. It is no longer a safety valve. The Interior Department has promulgated these regulations with the specific purpose of making it limited, narrow, and in its own words, not a best interest test. So it differs very much from the, what would be the traditional best interest test. So how do you understand this uh, to work? I mean, if you have, for example, um, uh, an Indian couple, uh, non-tribal members of the, of the tribe of the uh, uh, child, uh, exactly how does the state court adoption authority uh, take into account — how do they weigh the interest of the non-family tribe member against, you say you don't take into account the best interests of the child? What are you weighing on the other side? Well, I think you could look to the Texas Court of Appeals decision in the YRJ case as just an example of this. So the question is whether, whether the the person challenging the placement preference has shown one of the enumerated factors um, by, it, at that time, clear and convincing evidence. The, that, that standard of proof has since fallen by the wayside. So that's how it, it plays out on the ground. Is one of those five factors demonstrated by preponderance of the evidence? It doesn't, you know, it, it does not, those five factors don't take into account the bonding or attachment of the child, which would be the most obvious and most compelling part of the best interest standard. It only says if there's you know, a showing of extraordinary needs that, uh, that, that is you know, not just something that is uh, from what the regulation describes as ordinary bonding and attachment, that good cause can be shown. I mean, the, the, after the 2016 regulation, the the placement preferences are effectively dispositive in many cases. Counsel, can I take you to the scope of the Indian power? We've described it as plenary. It's quite broad. And in area after area, we've, well, the con we've allowed Congress to far exceed anything that we would think of as just commerce in the sense of trade, you know, which is something that you've floated. Are you asking us to overrule all of those precedents? No, Your Honor. Um, I, I'm not going to speak for uh, my colleagues on the, from the state of Texas, but for our, for our part, no, we're not, we don't think you need to overrule any of the press. Because you'd have us just focus on the equal protection. No, Your Honor. I mean, on, on the Article I piece, they, I, this cannot be understood as within the, the court's Indian Commerce Clause precedence. It's not commerce in any, uh, in any normal sense of that word. The question is then whether it is part of the plenary power that otherwise has been uh, described in this court's precedence. And our submission is that that plenary power is, if you, if you uh, in the court's cases, as elaborated in this court's cases, that plenary power applies to the tribe's areas of its sovereign interests, tribal lands, treaty powers, its internal affairs, its ability to self-govern. It's not a power to regulate Indians everywhere, wherever they might be in the jurisdiction of the United States. 
So what do you do with that line of cases, like the Act of 1888, setting the evidentiary standard for proving a marriage in cases involving an Indian woman and a white man? That wasn't limited territorially. That set an evidentiary standard. Or the Trade and Intercourse Act of 1834 set burdens of proof in all trials, whether on reservations or outside of reservations, about property rights between Indians and non-Indians. The Act of 1799, state courts must take proper bail when federal officers detain offenders who trespassed into Indian territory. So that one arguably had something to do with that, but there's a legion of cases, as Justice Barrett alluded to, where Congress has um, gone off of Indian lands, had nothing to do with sovereignty, had to do nothing to do with trade or commerce, or commerce, but with intercourse, with the relationship with Indians, whether on or off reservations. Well, Your Honor, I, I guess my, I would have two parts to my response. The first is that the, the Constitution confers a, an authority to regulate commerce, and that power as understood um, as Justice Thomas's separate opinion and adoptive couple, I think, well But that elaborate. was a separate opinion. We've described the power as more plenary than that. Well, I, and I think this is just the, the fundamental portion of my submission, and I respect the fact that we might not agree on this, but that there is a commerce power that, that allows the government to regulate commerce wherever it happens within the United States. And then there is, in addition to that, a plenary power that allows the tribes, allows the government, the federal government, to regulate the tribes. And that arises from the federal government's you know, role as the subjugating sovereign of the tribes and its role as the, now under Kagama, the protector of those tribes. But that power is not unlimited. It does why is it limited by geography? You, you're suggesting that the power, the plenary power that you describe, is limited by the tribal land demarcation. And I don't understand where that comes from. Well, I, I don't think it's just tribal land, Your Honor, although as this court's decision in Plains Commerce Bank uh, says, that is the, the, the core of tribes' sovereign interests, but it also would extend to treaty rights, uh, the internal affairs of the tribe, and the laws that, that address the scope and form of tribe self-government. All right, so you concede that Congress has plenary power over tribal sovereignty and self-government then? Tri uh, I believe that Congress absolutely has the power to, to adjust and change the scope of tribes' power to govern themselves. All right, so w what do we do with the legislative history in uh, regard to this act in which Congress repeatedly referred to the kinds of, of uh, restrictions and regulations in this area, in ICWA, as a matter of tribal governance and self-government uh, you know, self and sovereignty. I mean, Congress said things like, there's no resource that is more vital to the continued existence and integrity of Indian tribes than their children. They constantly cast regulations regarding children Indian children as a matter of tribal integrity, self-governance, existence. So why isn't that enough to 
bring it within the, the, the scope of their plenary power? Addressing the tribal existence point, I have four responses to that. The first is that the third placement preference doesn't even rationally advance that objective. Placing a Seminole child with a Cherokee family doesn't rationally advance the existence of either tribe. The second point is that placement does not dictate membership. You need only look as far as YRJ to show that. Right, but I feel like you're in the weeds of the actual regulation. What I'm asking you is the broader question about whether or not Congress has the ability to regulate in this area. So, I understood your response to Justice Barrett to be not anything outside of commerce or uh, the plenary power ex expanding to or extending to self-governance and uh, self-regulation. So I'm just asking as a matter of characterization, why aren't regulations that concern whether or not Indian children are going to remain in the tribes fitting within that plenary power? Your Honor, in Williams versus Ali, this court described the power of self-government as the power of reservation Indians to make their own laws and to be ruled by them. ICWA has nothing to do with that. Counsel, ICWA counsel um, I'm struggling to understand your argument. For the first half of it, I heard policy complaints. I, it took a while for me to even hear the words equal protection or Article One. And I guess I'm, I'm curious, first of all, which do you think is your better argument? Where Legally, not, not, the policy arguments might be better addressed across the street. Um, Justice Gorsuch, uh, as you, uh, we are here uh, to advance both arguments, but I'd like to talk about the equal protection argument. Okay, so if the equal protection is your better argument, what do we do about your standing problem? You've sued federal officials, um, not the state courts who actually are tasked with operating I think my answer to that, uh, Justice Gorsuch, starts with the traceability standard, which is de facto causation. And then I would no say- No federal official can dictate to a state family court what to do, can he? Uh, I'm sorry, I did not hear the question. Can any federal official that you sued tell a state court what to do? Um, no, Your Honor. Okay, I would think that might be the end of it. What am I missing? Two things, Your Honor. First is, fact that the traceability standard is de facto causation, and as shown in the court's decision in Bennett versus Speer, the, the agency that issues the regulation is the de facto cause of a separate party that implements it. That is what's going on here. We have a statute here. here. You're asking us to enjoin somebody from operating a statute. We also the only are- only people who operate this statute are state court judges and tribal judges. We also are asking the court uh, to affirm the judgment vacating the 2016 rule on the grounds that it implements an unconstitutional statute. And, and that would protection, Fine, let's say you've got standing. I'm, I'm, I'll spot you that for the purpose of this question. How is this an invidious racial classification rather than a political classification? Uh, tribes are, are mentioned in the Constitution, and in fact, we have the treaty power, which mentions tribes as separate, indicates that they're separate sovereigns. Your Honor, the court explained in Rice versus Cayetano that tribal classifications cannot be used in regulation of state affairs. It drew a line between the regulation 
the use of tribal classifications in regulating tribal internal affairs and regulating the affairs of the state. You agree that the Congress can treat with tribes, right? Of course, Your Honor. Of course. And in Mankari, we held this as a political classification, right? Uh, with respect to the hiring preference there at issue. Yeah, okay. So let's turn to your Article I. Um, and I I'm struggling to understand what it is because you've seen to I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll carry on later, Chief. Sure. Yeah. Justice Thomas? Uh, briefly, Counsel, um, is there a difference between uh, regulating a tribe or tribal affairs and regulating someone who happens to be Indian? Um, Your Honor, I think it depends on the context. Somebody who, uh, if you, by the word Indian... Well, in this case, what, I mean, I, I don't want to get the whole uh, range. Uh, we're talking about uh, children who do not reside on a reservation, right? They are covered by the statute, yes. Uh, who uh, uh, are not necessarily members of a tribe. Correct, Your Honor. And that's what I'm interested in. Is there a difference between regulating a tribe or a reservation and regulating someone who happens to be uh, have some Indian blood? Um, Your Honor, I, I would submit certainly not in this case. Congress here told us what it was doing. It was identifying a class of persons who had blood in common. That's at page 20 of the House report. It wanted to put the, that class of people in the Indian community writ large. I don't think that's what I'm asking, and I'll stop with this. Um, what I'm asking is, assuming there is plenary authority for the national government to uh, treat with or regulate tribal affairs and affairs on reservations or related to reservations, is there a difference when someone happens to be an Indian, not on a reservation, not a part of a tribe, not associated with a tribe? It, do we consider them the same or do we consider them differently? Because that someone is also a citizen of the United States. And I'm asking you, are we to just put them all in one ball simply because you can regulate tribal affairs? No, Your Honor because you know, at least in Mankari itself, it recognized that the, that the hiring preference there was limited to tribal Indians. And there, the court recognized that Mankari, the, the hiring preference was a, in a sui generis agency that had a special relationship in the governance of tribes qua tribes. And this, I, I think, is perhaps the, you know, addresses the point of your question. There is a difference between regulating tribes as a polity and regulating persons who happen to have tribal blood as persons. Justice Alito? Justice Sotomayor, anything further? You're not suggesting, but I think you may be, that um, Congress's power is only with respect to tribes and not Indians? They can't regulate the relationship between Indians and others, whether they're on the tribe or not. So all those laws I read about previously at the founding, they were unconstitutional to start with. Your Honor, Because they I, had nothing to do with reservations. They had to do with individuals. 
I think you know, some of the laws you cited, I think, have you know, serious equal protection problems, um, including, for instance, uh, there's a law that's still on the books that provides for the federal government to forcibly enroll uh, Indians in boarding schools. That's 25 U.S.C. 302. Um, so there are some serious equal protection problems in some of the cases that you cited. That might be, I mean, but that has nothing, that doesn't talk to us about what you're suggesting in answer to Justice Thomas, which is that the plenary power is limited to dealing with tribes and not, not the treatment of individual members. What I was talking about with Justice Thomas, Your Honor, is uh, how the, the, the difference of a political classification and a racial classification. And I, the, the, our submission is that a classification is political when it when it regulates the tribe's you know, sovereign interests, which is to say regulating the tribe as a polity, when it regulates Indian land, its so treaty rights. So you're saying, rights. yes, they can't do, only individuals, if it has to do with the limited sovereignty question. Is that what you're saying? As an equal protection matter, okay. whether it... I understand, sir. Justice Kagan? Uh, I, I'm not sure I do, so I'm going to continue on the same vein. Um, uh, we have a long history of cases uh, where we've understood legislation relating to the tribes as, um, uh, it, as political in nature, not as racial. I think you have one case, which is rice. And so I want to, on the one hand, say, what do you do with this long line of cases which has consistently said when you regulate the tribes, you're regulating political entities. And then uh, on rice, you know, a very different situation. Number one, a 15th Amendment case not involved here, right to vote. But even more important than that, really the classification did not relate to a tribe. It related to some centuries-old affiliation uh, with Native Hawaiians, which was much harder to understand as a current-day political entity. So, um, so I guess I think Rice doesn't do much for you, and then all these other cases really knock uh, the legs out from this argument, and I'm wondering whether you would comment on that thought. Sure. Um, let me start with Rice. Uh, I think Rice does explain those, that long line of cases that you refer to, uh, it cites them, um, you know, I think at page 519, it cites Moe, Fisher, uh, Antelope. This is the line of cases that I think you're referring to. And these are cases that deal with tribe sovereign interests in Indian lands, treaty rights, that's the fishing vessel case, uh, you, the ability of Indians to govern themselves, that's Fisher, um, and its internal affairs. That is the, that is the line that, that Rice drew and how Rice understood Mankari and the line that Mankari itself drew. This, this distinction uh, that I'm drawing is rooted in Mankari itself because Mankari says that it would be a much more difficult question if the hiring preference there extended to the whole of the federal government. I mean, Mankari is such a different sort of case, right? Mankari is Indians are are in a long list of other racial classifications. Um, it was quite clear that, uh, oh, that was the BIA one, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry, I was, uh, you, uh, I, I was mistaken. Um, but um, I, I guess, again, I'm sort of struggling 
with how different the classification in Rice was to the classifications here. So I, um, I understand the question, Your Honor. Rice, th this was, uh, you know, the, at the core of the Rice decision. Rice starts by assuming what it calls your premises not established in our case law, both that Native Hawaiians uh, should be treated as an Indian tribe and further that Congress delegated to the state of the Hawaii the power to regulate them. That, that the court assumed that, assumed that they are an Indian tribe, that Hawaii had the power to regulate. And then it held that the that Hawaii or Congress could not regulate a tribe in this way because it was regulating the affair of a state, not the tribe's own self-government. And I think you know, the, the point I, further point I would make about Rice is that Rice, the, the, the statute there had a much closer tie to self-government. It was the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. It had a much closer tie to self-government than the Indian Child Welfare Act. Well, the first thing you need for self-government is, you know, a, a functioning um, polity. And Congress is very clear in this statute that it thinks that this statute is critical to the continuing existence of the tribe as a political entity. And that's, in fact, one of the reasons it passes this statute, is the political entity is itself being threatened because of the way uh, uh, decisions on the placement of children are being made. So I, I guess I can't imagine uh, a, a, a statute that's more wrapped up, given, given the terms and given what we know about what Congress was doing, uh, is more wrapped up in the continued flourishment of political communities. Your Honor, the uh, placement preferences do not affect tribal membership. You can be a member of the tribe wherever you are placed. And it is, you know, the fact that tribes often do unilaterally enroll children regardless of where they are placed. The further point I would make, Your Honor, is that embedded in, in the, the, the question is, is a premise that tribes have a proprietary interest in these children, and I have to uh, reject that premise. Well, this tribes is Congress's understanding of what it was doing. You know, and again, this goes back to Justice Gorsuch's view of you can question the policy, you cannot question the policy, but the policy is for Congresses to make. And Congress understood these uh, 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 children's placement decisions as integral to the continued thriving of Indian communities. And Congress had a different view of the costs and benefits of how these decisions were being made. And that's not something that we can second guess, is it? It is under the Constitution, Your Honor. I think the, the, the Congress does not have the power to treat these children as property of the we, tribes we because second, of their ancestry. We can second guess things under the Constitution if you have uh, made a case about an equal protection violation or some other constitutional violation. Right. But what I'm suggesting is that just the idea of standing up there and saying this has nothing to do with um, uh, 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 the continued thriving of Indian political communities, um, uh, that's a judgment for Congress to make. There, uh, I want to be clear about this. There was a, a real problem that, that Congress was trying to address. We're not denying that there, the existence of a problem, but the means Congress chose are impermissible. Two wrongs do not make a right here. Thank you, Mr. Mikko. 
Justice Gorsuch. Counsel, let's put aside your equal protection complaints, which is what I understand the heart of your response to Justice Kagan. On the Article One argument, you argue this whole area is outside Congress's control. All right? At least that's how I understood it going in. But I'm now wondering, um, I am confused by your argument. Do you acknowledge that Congress has some off-reservation or off-tribal land power? Congress can under regulate. Article One. Sorry to interrupt. Uh, uh, Congress may, under the Indian Commerce power, regulate commerce with Indian tribes wherever it occurs. So, so you agree, for example, with our precedent going back to 1865 that says, in reference to any Indian tribe or any person who is a member of such tribe, is absolute without reference to the locality of the tribe or the member of the tribe with whom it's carried on. You agree with that? Um, I'm not exactly sure which case you're referring to, but I Holiday. agree with the, Holiday. I think the print, pardon? Holiday. Right, there's equal protection problems there, but I'm, yes. I'm asking you to put yes. that aside. So, so Congress can regulate off reservation. It can regulate commerce with, uh, with Indians off reservation. Okay. Yes. And um, would you have us, uh, if, if your view of commerce is that narrow, as, as, as it portrayed in your brief, what happens to Congress's power to regulate health care for Indians off-reservation. That's a major part of Title 25. I, Did that I, go? I don't think our, uh, our view of commerce is any uh, more limited than the court described in Lopez. Um, so I, I so would— So that might go? Uh, no, I don't the believe urban, so. I, ur I, that would stand. They could regulate health care for Indians off-reservation. Yes or no? I think it, to the extent that it is a, you're regulating articles of commerce, it comes within the, the heartland Health, of- Healthcare counts? It, count, it comes within the heartland of how Lopez defined commerce, as I understand it. Healthcare counts, but this doesn't. This is so treating children as property. Forget about the equal protection no, argument but for it, a moment. No, it goes to the commerce. Counsel, if I'm, so commerce includes healthcare, but not education, is, is that, and, 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 and child rearing, is that, is that your view? Uh, no, it's, uh, I, I, you inserted education, um, but our position is that the commerce power does not extend to child placement decisions. So it, okay, so let's talk about that. If we've put aside the off-reservation, so this really has to do with something about family law, I, I, I take it, the core of your complaint then. This, this is a family law case. And that's Your Honor. the core of the problem, in your view, that Congress can't regulate family law matters for Indians off reservation. I think the, the core of the problem is if this is within Congress's authority, then there is nothing that cannot be regulated by Congress if it touches upon Indians. How about the fact that the federal government does lots of other family law mediation between sovereigns? Uh, the Parent Kidnapping Act, for example. Uh, domestically with respect to disputes among states. Congress speaks there. And as Justice Sotomayor mentioned, when there's a dispute between sovereigns, uh, foreign sovereigns, it speaks there, and we don't question its authority to do so. Wouldn't it be a little odd to think that it couldn't do the same here? With respect to the latter point, uh, Congress, of course, has power to enact laws to implement treaties. And uh, so I, I think the Hague Convention type legislation is unremarkable. I think m Congress acts in this- How about the parent kidnapping statute? I'm, I will confess to be not being familiar with that one, but if you look at All perhaps- right, we'll, the, we'll put that aside then if you're not familiar with it. Uh, you're saying it'd be possible to do it under the treaty power. 
What if Congress tomorrow adopted a treaty with the tribes that replicated ICWA? Would that be within its power? Uh, it would perhaps, I, I think it perhaps would be within its Article I power. That's my question, yeah, it would be, okay. Uh, and how about if it did it under the spending clause? That, could that be within its Article I power? Well, that's how Congress regulates the states in the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act. So and it could do these things under Article I, you're just complaining that it's done it, being done under the Indian Commerce Clause. I think that uh, that is our argument. We're not saying that Congress is powerless in this area. Congress has power, certainly through the, uh, the spending clause, to do any number of things with respect to uh, state, how states govern themselves. When it comes to placement of um, <coughs> uh, children, is, is it a little anachronistic to think that states have some particular sovereign interest here when many of them did not involve themselves at all in placement matters directly until the 1960s? Um, mostly done privately for most of the nation's history. I don't know that I would describe it as anachronistic, um, but I think it, the fact that things were done privately uh, does not change what this court has said about the, the state's primary role in the area of child custody matters. How about the fact that the federal government um, has been historically involved in family law matters with respect to Native Americans for a long time? Uh, as Justice Kagan pointed out, it passed this statute in, in, in kind of uh, to remedy its prior actions in this area with respect to boarding schools and the displacement of Native American children. So could it, could it have done the boarding schools or is you're arguing that's, that would have been improper too? I, I, I think the boarding schools statute requiring the, or, or permitting the forcible enrollment of Indian children in boarding schools without the consent of their parents is obviously unconstitutional. Under Article I? Um, yes, because it has nothing to do with commerce in my, would be my submission. Okay. And then back to Justice Kagan's questions. If commerce does include things essential to Indian self-governance, I think you've conceded that, tribal lands, tribal uh, governmental arrangements, I, I guess I'm struggling to understand why, why this falls on the other side of the line um, when Congress makes the judgment that this is essential to Indian self-governance preservation of, uh, of Indian tribes? The, the power uh, that has been recognized is the power to effectuate Indian self-government, which is the power of tribes to make their own laws and be ruled by them. And ICWA does not affect tribes' ability to make their own laws. It doesn't affect their ability to be ruled by them, except with respect to Section 1911A, which provides for exclusive jurisdiction of children, you know, pertaining to children who are resident on tribal lands. Lastly, is there some irony in your position that you're here to vindicate states' rights? We have 23 states who've lined up on the other side. We've never had a state court, and near as I can tell, in the 40-some years since ICWA was adopted, complaining about this arrangement. Um, I don't understand that to be correct, Your Honor. I think there are state courts that have recognized uh, that ICWA has, uh, it far exceeds what Congress's. Has any, has, have state courts held that this is unconstitutional? Uh, there's the, ca the cases that held that it, uh, under what was known as the existing Indian family doctrine, that said that it would be unconstitutional as applied to a child who had no connection to right. a tribe. Fair, but I'm not aware of anybody holding ICWA 
facially unconstitutional in the manner that you're asking us to do? Uh, no, I, I, I would concede that no state court has, has gone anywhere. done that. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh? Earlier in response to Justice Jackson's question about the legislative history, you said you had four responses. You got out one and two uh, about the Cherokee Seminole and then the placement does not equal membership. I was interested in what three and four are, if you remember the question. Uh, I think I do, Justice Kavanaugh. The third point um, is that the, uh, that the placement, to the extent we're talking about tribal self-government, which is to say the ability of tribes to make their own laws, the ability under Williams, reservation Indians, to make their own laws and be ruled by them, the placement preferences do not even suggest that any Indian child has to live on or near a reservation. And the fourth point, which is the most fundamental point, which is that embedded in this argument is that tribes have a proprietary interest in these, in these children. And they are human beings. They are citizens of the United States and the states in which they reside. They are persons within the meaning of the Fifth Amendment. And they have liberty interests that the tribe cannot override simply by unilaterally enrolling them. On the equal protection issue, it'll be important for us to figure out the scope and limits of Moncari. And I'm going to ask two hypotheticals and then ask you to explain what I think will be your answer. So one, would Moncari justify a hiring preference for American Indians in other agencies beyond the BIA, such as the Treasury Department or the Justice Department, for example, in your view? No, because one, Moncari itself um, casts doubt on that possibility. And two, there would be no um, tether to... Indian self-government. Second, would Mankari alone justify a federally mandated preference for um, uh, state universities, college admissions for American Indians, in your view? No, Your Honor. And why not? Again, because it would have no tether to Indian self-government. I think part of the flaw of the, you know, the arguments on the other side here is that it it reduces to anything that is good for Indians that could be characterized in that way or that the government in its paternalistic judgment thinks might be good for Indians can be, uh, is permissible well, under their that view. Would be good for Indian self-government in the sense of uh, ensuring uh, uh, additional better education for American Indians? Why wouldn't that justification uh, link up uh, with tribal self-government? It's too attenuated, Your Honor. Rice, I think, explains this. Rice draws this line between regulation of the tribe's internal affairs and the use of tribal classifications there and the use of tribal classifications in the affairs of the state. In your hypothetical, we're talking about the affairs of the state. And I think that the important point about Rice is that there, there, in that case, there was a not just a plausible, a fairly direct tie to self-government of the indigenous people, but the court said Mankari could not be extended to that 
new context because Mankari was a limited exception based on the, quote, sui generis role of the BIA in regulating Indian tribes. And that's just simply not present in your hypothetical. Thank you. Justice, Justice Barrett. Mr. McGill, I'd like to ask you about the commandeering argument. So I want to focus just on the active efforts provision for right now. I want to get a grip on how this works. You know, so that provision requires the party seeking to affect a foster care placement or termination of parental rights to satisfy the court that active efforts have been made to provide remedial services and rehabilitation programs designed to prevent the breakup of the Indian family. And the government says, well, this applies to both private parties and state agencies. And so it's not directed at the state agencies and compelling government action and compelling the state to take steps. How does this work? Uh, do private agencies, in the Brackeen's case, I mean, do private agencies initiate these proceedings? Or really, is this something that falls on the states? I think on the ground, it falls on, on the states in the overwhelming majority of, 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 uh, of cases. I mean, I can't speak to the to the whole of the United States, and uh, but my understanding is in the overwhelming majority of cases, it falls on the states to do this, and that is the you know, of course, they are the ones that have the ability to do so. Okay, thanks, Justice Jackson. Yes, so I, I think there's an aspect of your Article One argument that really boils down to um, a. A fundamental question that comes up in the law a lot, which is who decides? Who decides whether regulation in this area counts uh, for uh, Indian self-government, promotes Indian self-government, has a sufficient tether? I keep hearing you say in response to many of my colleagues' questions uh, that you think that regulation related to family affairs uh, does not have a sufficient connection to Indian self-government, but in the actual legislative history of this uh, ICWA, uh, and I'm reading from the Federal Register, Congress says, that it indicates that ICWA reflects its, quote, concern about preserving the integrity of tribes as self-governing sovereign entities and ensuring that tribes could survive both culturally and politically. That's 81 Fed Re uh, Federal Register 38781. So it seems to me that Congress has made a decision that regulating in this area is important for preserving the integrity of tribes as self-governing sovereign entities. And therefore, I don't think it's sufficient for you to say to us that you think that that's not true. So tell me how we're supposed to decide based on your view of whether or not this is a sufficient tether as opposed to what Congress has said about it. Um, I would first, I, I guess I have two responses to that, Justice Jackson. First is I would look to this court's cases that define the interest in self-government. And I would start with Williams versus Lee, which defines it as the right or the ability of reservation Indians to make their own laws and be ruled by them. Um, that, that case has never been, you know, to my knowledge, limited or abrogated. And that is my understanding of how this court defines the interest in self-government. But why would but, that be our decision then? I'm still worried that that would be this court displacing Congress's policy judgment around 
what counts? Because the text of the statute and its, you know, and its operative effect does not advance the objective there. The, if the objective is preserving the existence of tribes, the third placement preference does nothing to effectuate that. All right, let me ask you another question. Um, you have seemed to be very upset about Congress's exercise of plenary authority over Indian affairs. You say we need to look at it in a more narrow lens, I guess consistent with the sort of general understanding that Congress has limited authority. What I'm a little bit confused about and concerned about is whether it's really correct that we have to look at it so narrowly, that is the scope of Congress's authority as it concerns Indian affairs. When we have said over and over again that Congress has plenary and exclusive authority and when the history of our Constitution indicates that the constitutional design was about ensuring, in a way, that the federal government had the authority over the tribal relations, tribal uh, uh, affairs, and not the states. It seemed to me that baked in to the Constitution's structure related to this, outside of just the Indian Commerce uh, Clause provision, is the notion that the federal government vis-a-vis uh, you know, -vis the states was going to be taking charge of this, especially in light of the Articles of the Confederation uh, uh, precedent. So if that's the case, then what, what would you say about the thought that rather than you know, searching for you know, what additional limits there are on Congress's authority, we start with the premise that with respect to Indian affairs, Congress has plenary authority and... Therefore, as we've said in all of these prior cases, as long as it involves Indian affairs um, and Congress is making policy judgments, they have a constitutional basis for doing so. Justice Jackson, if, the, if this arises from the constitutional structure, as you suggested, then it has to be the United States, gover the, the United States government's regulation of tribes as on a government-to-government -government basis. That's the constitutional structure point. And if we're talking about regulating tribes as government governments, we are talking about regulating their residual sovereign interests, which are, as I described, in Indian lands, it, their treaty rights. Yeah, but do you dispute that there's a trust relationship? My understanding was that, yes, we're talking sovereign-to-sovereign, -sovereign, but that as a part of that was the understanding that the United States was the greater sovereign, that it was taking over the Indian sovereignty and therefore had a trust relationship uh, that arose in that context and they were responsible for Indian affairs as a result. Do you dispute that? We don't, of course we do not dispute the existence of the trust relationship. All we're saying is that the power that Congress exercises that has been described as plenary is limited in some way by the by the sovereign so you're interests saying that, that Congress Congress can carry out and effectuate its trust relationship, but only in the limited ways that you are now articulating. Uh, no, Your Honor. I think what we're saying is that there, it, you don't have to 
do anything with respect to the federal government's trust relationship with Indian tribes to recognize that that power does not extend to regulating the placement of Indian children in state courts. Even if Congress has decided that that regulation in that area is necessary to prevent the extinction of tribes, they can't do it, you're saying, pursuant to the trust relationship that you seem to concede exists. Um, Your Honor, we do not concede that that for the reasons that I elaborated, that this is not a... uh, The tribes do not have a proprietary interest in these children. They are also... Take take YRJ. I'm sorry. Um, Can I just ask one more question? My time is short. With respect to commandeering, where uh, Justice Barrett took you, do you have a case that is older than the early 1990s related to the commandeering principle? Is that the first time? I tried to look back to figure out where anti-commandeering came from as a constitutional concept. And I'll tell you, I'm concerned about it because I think it's relatively recent, and I'm just trying to understand whether it even conceivably applies to an area in which we have already or or long recognized that the federal government has this sort of plenary authority because states were interfering with Indian affairs. And so it seems to me odd that we would suddenly say in this area, using a relatively new anti-commandeering principle, that the federal government can't do what it has long done in terms of taking control of this area away from the states uh, related to Indian affairs? Um, Your Your Honor, this court's anti-commandeering cases recognize that the doctrine arises from the structure of the Constitution and the Tenth Amendment. Um, That was obviously recognized fully uh, by New York versus the United States, but uh, as I recall, um, but as I recall, there there was a case called Coil that I think is from the 1920s, maybe 1925, that involved the federal government's uh, dictating where Oklahoma put its uh, state capital, and I think that uh, was the earliest case I found that actually applied some version of the. But we don't have any anti-commandeering cases that um, that are, arise in the Indian affairs context. This would be the first time. Uh, I'm not aware of any, Your Honor. Thank you. Do you have a further? I I, I would just accept to the extent that Oklahoma, of course, um, arose from once upon a time being Indian territory. Thank you, counsel. 